Hi, I'm Larry Reed, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. For today's episode, I am joined by Dr. Norman Horn, and we are going to have just a discussion about some basic libertarian principles. It's been a long time since we've sort of had a discussion, Norm, about some of the just where to live, what do libertarians believe and why do we believe some of the foundational principles that we believe in? So we're just going to have a conversation tonight. Sounds like fun. Let's do this. So what, what, this is a kind of common question a lot of people might get is like, well, what if, what's the fundamental principle that libertarians believe or like, what does, what does this all come down to at some point? Because there's so much out there that's like, you know, libertarians believe this, libertarians believe that. And, you know, if we boil it down, it means what? Yeah, it's interesting that you might find that there's still some people out there that don't really get it and they haven't heard much about what libertarianism is and what it entails. Uh, so if we were, you know, just approached by some random guy on the street and because that's always happens when I walk down the street is that somebody just, you know, out of the blue just asked me, hey, dude, what is a libertarian and what do you believe? Uh, because every time that happens to me, I say, well, the fundamental thing that we that we care about is uh, a consistent application of the non-aggression principle. What's uh, the non-aggression principle? Yeah, what is the what's the nap? What's the non-aggression principle? Uh, or sometimes you'll hear it called a few other things, the non-aggression axiom or whatnot. But it's more just the nap for that matter. Um, and what is that? What is the non-aggression principle? Well, in short, the non-aggression principle states that aggression is prohibited. That is the initiation of force or fraud against against someone else is is uh, is prohibited. That's the that is the fundamental thing that is uh, against natural law. Uh, and why why do we believe that? I mean, why is aggression the big deal anyway? Well, and if we can if we care about certain things about you know civilization itself, uh, if we care about peace and prosperity and in progress and and uh, improving oneself and having uh, uh, you know voluntary interactions with one another, then if we if if we want those things to occur, then it all kind of boils down to this idea that uh, the initiation of physical force or fraud is what's the problem uh, with with uh, with these types of or problematic interactions or whatnot. If we care about property, if we care about all of, of peace and the way we interact with one another, then we have to oppose the initiation of force. Of course, that means, you know, that if uh, it kind of entails right off the bat that if uh, if there is initiation of force is wrong. Well, what about other forms of force? Is there, is there a place for uh, for responsorial force in some way? Yeah. And in fact, if one is initiating force against someone else, then the response to that might be self-defense. And that is not prohibited. Uh, so we understand that as, as being kind of the way the way in which it works. And it doesn't mean you necessarily have to go through some sort of self-defensive measure. Uh, and in fact, a lot of times, you know, it, when it comes down to it, there are there are forms of aggression that warrant uh, different types of responses. There are some things that are that may be aggression, but are not um, but are not necessarily 
um, those things that you would respond with, uh, with some type of, of massive response. Uh, you know, if you're, if somebody is trying to, you know, break into your house and kill your family, well, then you have, you have warrant to, to do some sort of, uh, responsorial force to that that may involve repelling the attacker with deadly force. Uh, that's, that's not, uh, you know, that's not impermissible in the libertarian rubric, but there are other things that, that may, that, you know, if somebody, if somebody, you know, uh, pushes you, uh, pushes you around as they're trying to, you know, uh, get, get forward, move forward in a, in a line or something like that, that might be aggressive, but it doesn't warrant shooting them in the face or something stupid like that. Um, you know, so while on the one hand, aggression can be understood in a variety of different arenas, uh, we understand that there are degrees of it as well. Uh, and so, so that's kind of, that's kind of a, uh, high level overview of, of what one can, um, what one can imagine there. So there are a number of ways to put or say to the random person on the street who asks you, hey, uh, hey, you stranger wearing a hoodie that says libertarianchristians.com, uh, what do the libertarians believe? There are other ways to say it. You could say we believe in the non-aggression principle. Uh, another way to say it, it could be like, well, we, be- we want human interactions to be based on consent and not on force. And consent is a very important term nowadays in the Me Too, after the Me Too uh, phenomenon. And, you know, people on the left might actually kind of hear that and say, oh, consent. Well, I'm all about consent and I'm not about forcing, you know, decisions on people. Uh, I'm all about choice. Uh, well, one of the things that I think of when I think of the non-aggression principle and I think about how consent works, uh, self-defense or the ability to defend yourself against somebody who has, who has violated the non-aggression principle, uh, that's why it's justified is because they've violated the principle by which you hope they operate. And they've basically in some sense sort of, would you, would you call it they forfeited their right uh, to be peacefully dealt with when they decide to violate the principle norm? Is that kind of the way oh, you would yeah, say it? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. That's, and in fact, just a few weeks ago when we had Judge Napolitano on, uh, he kind of it used that, those exact words, I believe, to talk about that. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in sort of the, the broad picture of like, well, what what about society? Like, well, there should be a presumption of liberty of yeah. about individuals. They should be free to live as they see best for themselves. And they don't need justification to the rest of society. Uh, and so it, it's sort of the framework. It doesn't mean they can do whatever they want because whatever they want might be aggressive toward others. Um, and so... But the restrictions on their freedom, we would say, are violations of their personal rights. And we'll talk about property rights here in a little bit. Uh, and, and so they're they're wrong unless they're somehow shown otherwise. And that can get you know too far afield. But we're really just kind of talking about the basics here. Yeah, but what happens then we could we could actually then go to what happens when somebody does violate this principle, you know, the non-aggression principle. There's a beyond just self-defense. Yeah, well, you alluded to that. One is that you can react in self-defense, and we've had we've had conversations about you know how uh, is it okay? I mean, should Christians be pacifists and things like that? You can go back and listen to those for that conversation. You can react in self-defense. You don't have to, um, and you know, Christian. Christian ethics would probably uh, lead us to seek something like restitution rather than just retaliation or vengeance of some kind. But yeah, that is a really good question because if somebody has violated the non-aggression principle, then there's an issue of justice because we believe that individuals as a matter of justice should be left alone uh, or should be not 
should not be aggressed upon. Right. But then there's also the, you know, after the fact. Well, let's say someone has committed aggression against you or your property. What happens at that point? Uh, beyond the active, you know, uh, okay, if, if it's happening right now, then I can engage in self-defense. If it's happened in the past, there is something that has been essentially broken, right. uh, a, a principle. And so what happens there? And that's where we talk about, you know, the first, how do we deal with justice in this instance? Yeah. Uh, how does, and, and the first principle of justice is, we like to say, is restitution to the victim. And that it's not merely a matter of simply just, okay, well, if somebody did something wrong, well, then you punish the heck out of them and, until they, you know, I don't know, feel sorry enough or something. But rather, <laughs> the focus of justice is not on punishing the aggressor uh, as much as it is restoring the victim to wholeness as best as possible. And, uh, and that's, that's, I think the, the key difference between the way that, you know, we often think about justice in this case is that, you know, sometimes you, you, you know, envision, well, that guy just did something wrong. He just needs to be sent to jail. But, you know, that can actually become, there's actually like can be compounding problems to even that sometimes. It doesn't mean that there's never a place for incarceration of some kind. Um, however, the, you know, it just, it just seems kind of contradictory to think, well, okay, you know, if, if, you know, if guy, if, if this dude, you know, mugs Norman and steals his wallet, uh, that's, you know, that, yes, that's a bad thing. But then the way in which that's dealt with is not that Norman just gets his wallet back with some type of, of additional potential restitution on top of that, but that Norman is then taxed and then the other guy is sent to prison and the, and, uh, the rest of the rest of society is actually be getting, getting taxed in order to, to make sure that that guy is in prison or something to that effect. I mean, I'm so surprised kind of, Norm, but I don't think I've ever thought about it that way before. We're like, now that there's one additional person in prison or the fact that this is the method by which we put people in prison is because they they burden us with their violations of aggression or their yeah their aggressive acts is that now we as society have to pay more just to keep them away from us well, yeah well the irony of this too and by the way Doug like that's something that Mary Ruard has talked extensively about in her works um i believe that this is it, it's in uh you know healing our world uh, in an age of aggression, both that's the, I think that's the older version, the new version has a different subtitle, but the compassion that, of libertarianism is a subtitle. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think she talks about that extensively and, and, um, and you can find plenty more there. Uh, but, but yeah, like that's the irony of it too, is that it turns out that rest, that having the perpetrator actually, um, participate in the restitution process of making the victim whole again is actually better for both sides. And there's actually some substantial research to suggest that that is the case. Um, and we can't we really can't go through that here, but it exists. And, you know, and you can kind of see why, because, you know, think about I mean, this is a really reduced example. Right. But but follow it for a second. You know, if if a kid if a couple of kids are playing around and one, you know, uh, steals the other's toy, um, it doesn't really do it. It doesn't necessarily do a lot of good if uh, if if just pure punishment occurs. You know that might actually entail more alienation as a result um, than than what has already been taking place. But if if there is some restitution given to them that not only is the child, you know, give back the toy, but there is a, there's a, a means of communication that goes, that, that is a, that allows them to actually restore a relationship together. Then you can imagine that actually is potentially the, the, 
a much better result. Now, granted, that is a much more reduced and simplified case than the more complicated ones of what happens when, you know, uh, like a guy breaks into a house or something like that. And, and certainly, you know, we do not want to suggest that there's uh, that that should happen, that these types of situ- things should happen in every situation. There are times where you, the, the victim would never want to be in the presence of that perpetrator again. And we would under- that's understandable. But uh, but some sort of restu- restitutive process is often better um, for for all parties concerned uh, than than the pure well, let's just throw the perp in jail. And now it's kind of a double victimization process where now the, the original victim has to pay to make the other guy go away. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you think about the long arc of justice, the long game here, if you will, is wholeness and shalom. It's yeah. not just a matter of, oh, well, you violated a law. So now you have to pay the price. Well, OK, fine. There is going to restitution doesn't mean that there's no payment there. I mean, restitution can be painful. Well, um, it it doesn't mean yeah, if, if it, Doug steals yeah. my wallet, then I want to, you know, and if Doug steals my wallet and then goes off, I might have to hire a private investigator or something to get my wallet back. And uh, or, or there may be, you know, a variety of things that ha- incur- that, uh, that yeah. happen uh, in order to restore me to wholeness again. And that may also in, in, involve that. Well, not only do you give me my wallet back, but that guy has to now pay for the expenses to get it back. And that guy also needs to, you know, provide some interest payment. And I yeah. mean, there, there are ways in which we can yeah. rationally go about. Or maybe he has to be your butler for life. <laughs> <laughs> that's a really old reference. If people get that, great. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. Yeah. That's that's a, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's <laughs> so not to derail a serious topic with a with a innocent joke, uh, but I just couldn't help myself. So this violation of the non-aggression principle could is is important for a number of reasons. One is that we believe that individuals are made in the image of God, we're deserve, deserving of respect, and we need to treat each other as we'd like to be treated. There's you know there's plenty of biblical values in, involved in there, but there's also an important concept with respect to individuals, and that has to do with property rights. And property rights become very it can easily become kind of a convoluted topic and people start talking about slightly different things when they argue over whether or not there's such a thing as property rights, whether or not property rights are uh, kind of a modern invention. What does it mean to say that someone has a right to a property? Like there can be a lot of like in the weed sort of discussion. And, you know, for a deeper discussion, uh, one of the episodes we did with was with Stefan Kinsella about intellectual property. And at the beginning of that, he kind of spells out some of the, the clarifications over what does it mean to have property? Right. Uh, but but the a, a question that a lot of people think of when they think of property is that, well, shouldn't we value people over property? And that feels good. But when you really kind of get down to what do people even mean by that, it, it's really kind of meaningless because we have a right to ourselves. We have a right to our own bodies. And what we do with our bodies is related to property in, in some sense. Yeah, I think it's just important to remember that when we talk about property rights, these are ways of just delineating the boundaries the the fact is is that you know there's no just because some marxist at one point or another told you that you know well property doesn't exist or something like that you know doesn't mean that they've that they just suddenly dismembered you know a, a principle that's gone on for millennia here or something like that the notion of property rights has been attacked 
by a number of people, uh, you know, both <laughs> both common and great in stature uh, in, in, over the last you know decades, and uh, whether you know from Mar- the Marxists or currently in Congress for that matter, uh, but. The, the fact remains is that we have to have some way of delineating uh, what ownership looks like. We, we have to have some way of doing that. And the uniqueness of libertarianism in many respects is our theory of property rights and that it is concrete. It, it is very specific. It has and, – and it's the one that makes the most consistent uh, sense of the world. And so every social theory out there has some – understanding of property rights. The, the question is, how does it elucidate it? Uh, and libertarianism really is the, the, the best way of doing so. And what, it, what is that? Well, in short, uh, we could say that we, we uh, have a property right in ourselves. That is that because of, of uh, you know, whether, whether or not you're coming at this from a Christian perspective or not, you'd say that there is some inherentness to our humanity uh, rights come from our humanity, and whether you say that comes from God or not, it is—it uh, it still is part of the natural law. Uh, and as Christians, of course, we would would say that this has to do with the fact that we are made in the image of God. Um, and so, as such, there is a limit—a very limited sense in which anybody else has anything that they can control us with. Uh, and in fact, we would say that. There, that you know, again, this goes back to this idea of the non-aggression principle itself, that we are free. We have the presumption of liberty. We are free to live as we see fit so long as that we are as we are not committing acts of aggression against other people. Um, and that, those may come with consequences, of course, um, but nonetheless, we are free to do that. Um, so if we have that property right in and of ourselves, uh, that 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 delineates um, what others uh, can do to can do quote quote against us. Now, if uh, if that is the case, then in order to substantiate and prolong and flourish as uh, our, our lives in our lives, uh, then we have to be to also have some means of ownership over the means to do that. And so, you know, because of the just the natural scarcity of the universe where resources are resources are scarce uh, we have to have means by which we can tell we can say like this this is a uh, this resource has uh, exclusive use um, by a particular person um, and that's and that's how we developed you know property rights in the in, in the first place uh, so you know that's that's really all it is uh, is that we've we have a particular theory about property rights and that and that uh, really comes down to, you know, that exclusive use goes down to the first user, uh, the first appropriator of that of that resource. Um, that you know, and there's only there's only you know a few ways one can even uh, articulate that. It's like, okay, if somebody comes across a resource, it can only belong, it, it can only be um, allocated uh, toward use in in a few particular ways. One is that well, it, it belongs to everybody somehow, in, in in some equal fashion, or else it's nonsensical. But that that entails you know tons of of economic problems, and it doesn't make any it doesn't really make any sense. You could say well, it, it belongs to the last user, it belongs to the one who the one who can fight it out best, or something like that. But then that involves contradictions as well, as to well, then it's just a might makes right thing, and and then we we run up against uh, the uh, contradiction in how we own ourselves at that point. And then, you know, but then the other one is, is simply, well, whoever, whoever, uh, was able to appropriate it first is the one who has the right, uh, who has a property right in that resource. 
and then can trade it or do what, what he wills with it uh, so long as he's not aggressing or committing an act of aggression against someone else. And that's just how we do it. I mean, this is this is a very simple means of going about uh, about, uh, but it's consistent, and you know, it's consistent in how we uh, apply it. The first user principle, or otherwise, we sometimes will call that the homesteading principle, is just simply the the simplest way and least contra- like it has no contradictions in it uh, of of going about establishing a property right system. Now again, these this can be this can be elaborated upon at length, and there are those who can do that a whole lot better than I can. Stefan Kinsella is one of the the best uh, people to go about it, and then of course Murray Rothbard. If you want to go back a, a little, you know, earlier in in uh, in writings about that in the libertarian tradition, uh, that's a great way of of you know that's a good a good resource for you there. And I'm going to be the guy on the podcast who says yes and admits yes, libertarians do disagree somewhat on what the basis of property rights are. But you will probably you will not find a libertarian who would not say the property rights are an immensely important matter when discussing justice and political order. I think that's probably fair. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, we we agree on the substantial points. Oh yeah. Definitely. And whether or not they go to to Stefan or and Murray Rothbard or whether they they took take a slightly different approach, I think there's you know that's that's generally that's generally the way we would go about it. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. What I think is interesting about the question of you know self ownership, uh, we haven't used that word yet in this particular episode, uh, is that. When we talk about something like, well, we have a property in ourselves or we have property rights or we own ourselves and what we do uh, with with our own bodies, uh, Christians will come along. Even, you know, Christians who like kind of call themselves libertarians and or, or want to be libertarians are still just kind of reconciling. But what about this? And this is the question. Doesn't God own everything? Can we really say that we own ourselves? And there might be verses that they bring up and say things like, well, we were bought with a price. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know the reference. We were bought with a price. And uh, there might be a few others. Honestly, they're evading me now because uh, I didn't write them down before the episode. Um, so anyway, uh, is it accurate to say that humans can own something that really belongs to God? And I think this is just kind of a big confusion over what we mean by ownership. And, and and I have to think of it this way. I think of it like vertical versus horizontal in the sense that I didn't create anything else in this world and neither did you, Norm, and neither did uh, you know anybody else listening to this. We didn't create in the same way that God created the world. Uh, we didn't create any of those things. And so we don't, we don't own them. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know, we can't claim that. God can claim ownership over everything. Okay, fine. Well, now what? Like that doesn't give me anything useful to say, well, God owns everything. Well, now what? What does that have to do with me and you? Uh, does that mean that I, now that I believe that God owns everything, that I can just dictate what God, what what I get to say happens to Norman's property? Uh, that doesn't make any sense. So to say that God owns everything, well, yes, that's true. But when we're talking about political order, we're talking about how humans relate to one another. And as it relates to each other horizontally, I don't own you, you don't own me, and there's probably some rhyme I could have made up that made that sound even more poetic, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, that's just that's just it. Like, what, what, it's just about relationships to each other. I don't own you, you don't own me. 
Um, and so, you know, to me, I, I see people doing this outside the kinds of people who are saying, well, wait, how does this square with either this scripture? Well, what about the fact that God owns everything? Except for the people who are kind of genuine, genuine inquiry. A lot of times it just seems to me like a rhetorical strategy, like people who are just like, ah, I believe God owns it's, everything. Therefore, yeah, it's a the, gotcha question. Yeah, it's like, oh, well, since I believe God owns everything and the word of God says blah, 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 then we need to do blah, 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 things that I say God says in the Bible or whatever. I mean, you, we could you, because this could grow off the rails really fast with a bunch of examples. So it's kind of, yeah, it's a gotcha question. It's a rhetorical trick to get people to play God uh, because they don't like the fact that they don't own you. Yeah, I, I think that's fairly accurate. Um, it's and it's weird because that when people use that, it's uh, you'll you'll see people both on the conservative and liberal side who will who will elucidate that type of you know rhetorical strategy, and and I think that's just really kind of funny. Um, because it doesn't it, like if they if they really believe that, you know, what if you ask them, well, what are the ramifications of that? They might come up with completely different things. <laughs> right. Yes. And uh, and then so then the question is, well, well, which one of you gets to decide like yeah. which one of you which one of you gets to order the other around? Right. Which one of you is the vicar of God here? Yeah. Well, and I like mean, that, the other yeah, another thought about along those lines is like, well, OK, well, if we are all owned by God then none of us is God in order to play God over each other. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I, that, I don't think they really have much of a leg to stand on in like, for one thing, uh, I think you're, you're exactly right that the, that the uh, sort of horizontal versus the vertical relationship here is at play. That it, it's one thing to say that, that God's property claim over the universe is that he created it. Well, yeah, duh. Like, that's, that's great, but it doesn't really, that doesn't really have a, uh, a, a really that doesn't really elucidate uh, very concretely. What does that mean about you know your, yours and Doug's and Norman's relationship about how Doug can order right. Norman's resources around in Norman's body? And it vice doesn't. Versa. It doesn't help us understand the political order yeah. and social structure and all of that. Yeah. Like, yep, okay, that's true. Yeah. Um, and I think there's obviously advantages in you know, Christian testimony and things of that sort. But in terms of like determining how we all relate to one another. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really solve the problem. Maybe there's some theological meaningfulness, if you will, uh, to exploring that. But uh, on on a very basic level, there's yeah. there there is though on some level, and that's the and that's the you know the notion that we we we've brought this up in our podcast and, and in our in our works our written works as well about stewardship, and 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 it's there is a fair question to be asked. It's like okay, well, all right, if it. So, so let's say, let's say that you do have all of the, like God created us with this freedom. Yes. He, yes, he is the, the ruler of the universe, but he created us as, as sub creators with part of that mission is to go and have dominion over the earth. And then what, but what does that mean? Like, do, how do we, uh, like, do we need institutions or do we need some guide into becoming good stewards of this regard? And, and, and we get asked that. And the answer to that, of course, is, well, yeah, like there, there are aspects of that. I mean, what else is the church if not a, an institution that helps uh, to guide in our behavioral processes? <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> right. So maybe we should just make the state like the church and, you know, you know, implement good Christian policies. Right. Isn't that what <laughs> we mean? We need some overarching motherly system of motherly institution to make sure that we're all well taken care of and that we all just love each other. Right, Norm? 
Well, not exactly. Oh, I mean, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So we should yeah, just abolish institutions because you know we're all just individual automatons. That's what libertarians now, believe, right? See, now, now you've gone to the total polar opposites, and there is a balanced view that we try to bring to to bring forward as the result, right? So <laughs> this, we believe in voluntary interactions, and so there is a there is a place for a guide, uh, and but those are voluntarily held. Um, so we we work together in order to to do these sorts of things, and in, and we do that in a voluntary way. We don't need to execute force against one another in order to in order to have, uh, you know, well established order. Like that's not it's not required to get there. So I think that's it's really the, like kind of the the balanced view is that there are ways in which we can organize ourselves that don't require us to execute force against one another. Yeah, I mean, and the the. The gist of it, the kind of the point we're going to end on here is that institutions matter because order is important. Uh, we, as as uh, you know, we started off here talking about non-aggression and individuals, and we begin thinking about, well, okay, well, how does that that works fine when I'm thinking about you know Doug and Norman or you know Judge Andrew Napolitano with you know the hundreds of people who see him on the streets of New York. How do they interact with each other? Well, they they you know they don't violate and they don't aggress and things like that. Well, what does that do in the big picture with millions and billions of people? Uh, how does this deal with social order? And we, we believe that institutions do matter. It does matter how society is organized. So we don't want to communicate that there's like nothing to think beyond just, oh, me and, you know, one other individual or, or whoever I know. Uh, and so order, political order, and I use the word political order, maybe maybe that's not right the right word, like order, societal order, uh, not as in like there needs to be some sort of like overarching institution to order society, but order without control is still order. Well, that's the beauty of of human interaction. I mean, the, you know, when when we talk about in, in uh, like anarcho capitalism or just voluntary voluntarism uh, in in our show, you know, at various points, I think it's it's kind of there's a certain sense in which so like the bulk of human interactions in the world today are completely anarchical in nature. When you think about it, oh right? yeah, I mean that's that's. What's absolutely mind-boggling about the people who say, well, we need more – people need to be controlled. Uh, people don't know what's best for themselves. People, you know, people will, not, uh, will not behave well if you, don't put, if you don't put massive controls and laws in place. It's like, really? Do you really believe that? Yeah. Because if you think about it, the overwhelming majority of interactions are, are completely without any type of – of centralized control unit. There's no, there's no, uh, oh, there's no, there's nothing that's, that's pushing people in place. There's not, we don't live in 1984 here. We don't live in brave new world, uh, where those things are in place. And so all we would suggest as libertarians is that perhaps the boundaries of those interactions that can be completely without centralized control are broader than you might even think are possible. And so, like, that's really what we're, where we're gunning for here. Yeah, another way to put it is you're already practicing anarchy in a, num- yeah. in a, in a variety of ways throughout your day. Now, I will say this. There's going to – I could just imagine the critic here and in, in my – you know, the, the, the inner critic over my left shoulder saying, but wait a second. You're doing those interactions peacefully and without, you know, 
fear of, you know, there's a lot of trust involved in the way that you interact with people when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the market, when you go buy stuff at various places, I guess that's the market, uh, that if it weren't for institutions like the state, whether high state or like local governments, municipalities and things, if there weren't police forces and some sort of system of justice involved that you just rely on, that you take for granted, you wouldn't have those quote unquote anarchic uh, interactions uh, that that Norman just described. Now, I could I would concede that on the one hand, sure, except that doesn't prove the point that you need a top-down, ordered, structured society in sort of the 1984 kind of way. It means that there are institutions that don't need such things because most of what we live by isn't just, oh, well, yeah, uh, you know, I'm glad the state has my back and they instituted all of these things. A lot of this goes back to the history of common law and how over the years and over the centuries, we've just assumed that we, there, there's just been like culture of trust built over over decades and over centuries in in especially in the West. Um, and another thing that like kind of I wouldn't say proves the point, but kind of as an illustration, if for some reason right now, as you're listening to this episode, uh, the Constitution, the original Constitution, and for that matter, let's just say every copy of the Constitution just somehow disappears or, or whatever. Yeah, there'd be some sort of like, you know, outrage and uproar and so forth. But it isn't like. Oh Call my God. Nicholas Cage. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, yeah. yeah, we couldn't let that pass. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't. Sorry. Of course. No, it's fine. Uh, so, but here's the thing. Like, we're not all going to be like, oh, well, now I can aggress against my neighbor. No, these are, this is just part of who we are as a people. Now, again, I realize I'm talking as an American in general Western modern society. It's just kind of part of how we do things. And yes, there is a justice system in place that doesn't necess necessitate statism. Uh, it doesn't necessitate a large government. Uh, that's not what we're talking. That's not what I'm talking about right here. Uh, it's but I, I guess the broader point here is that, yes, many of the interactions you do day by day don't need the state. Uh, in fact, things like the trust that you have, I'll just use an example here, uh, the trust that you have that when you use a credit card to pay somebody, the trust that is involved there when you use a credit card especially is there's three parties involved. And the if you don't have the funds, nobody goes to the government to figure that out and like come get you. It's you, it's your, it's your bank or your credit card company, which is a bank. Uh, it's not the state that comes after you. Yes, there's some infinite regress there. At some point, there is the state involved uh, and so forth. But all of your interactions aren't predicated upon some system that is sort of enacted by the state alone. Well, and, and the farther we progress in technological advancement and whatnot, the less and less the yeah. state is involved yeah. to, a, to such an extent that it's absolutely mind-boggling. And again, like I don't think we can. Yeah, the the person who say, well, you know, you have this background system in place. Like, oh, okay, like sure, but you know, that doesn't prove. Like you said, Doug, that doesn't really prove the point that it's yeah. necessary. It just proves the point that it right. is. You know, that's just the that's just the where we live now. That has nothing. Uh, just because something is doesn't mean it should be. And just right. because it's something not, right. is and, doesn't and mean again, that Again, I don't want to sound uh, like, oh, well, we don't have any respect uh, for any the means. way things are and that we're just like, you know, we're not aware of the water we swim in and we're not thankful for it and so forth. Like, of course, 
of course, every day I am thankful for the institutions that people hundreds yeah, well, of years crazy. ago believed in <laughs> and some of them did fight for, and the, you know, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't necessitate state the state and especially ratcheting up the concentration of power, I think, is kind of the direction that I would go when we talk about anti-statism. Uh, and as Norm said, like with technological advances, there are ways in which that we can foresee, and it might be our grandkids or great grandkids that actually kind of make this happen. Uh, it might be sooner than that. Who knows? Uh, that we don't need to build, we don't need a central institution to establish the kind of order that we have long uh, been used to, and and honestly, only been used to for several hundred years. Uh, for for reference, there, I'm just going to point listeners to the episode um, called "The Social Singularity." Uh, with Max Borders, and that uh, that book in and of itself is a is a great way as a great place to start. I think in summary here we can say people deserve to be free. People can be free. There is no need for a state, and there is no reason to that we have to have uh, the, that stuff in the background. That's really all it is. Yeah, the presumption of liberty. We want we want interactions based on consent, not force. What's so bad? What's so bad about that, man? I mean, you've been on this 40 minute elevator ride with me listening to me tell you about the non-aggression yeah, principle yeah. and its applications. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for a 30 second answer and you got a lecture. So, yeah. So if you want people to come up to you and say, hey, you're a libertarian, you can go to libertarianchristians.com slash store and you can buy hoodies and other swag. And they'll just know that you're a libertarian. Truly, truly. <laughs> well, that's that is certainly something you can do. But we do appreciate everybody's support, and we hope that you do get uh, something out of this. And that uh, the next time that you're, you know, talking to your friends or your family or that guy, random guy on the street who asked you about your hoodie, a question about liberty, that you'll have at least a little more ammunition in your in your uh, in your buckle to 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 bring out for it. So. Thanks for thanks for sticking with us for this episode, and we'll be bringing you a whole lot more in the future like this. Yep, there will be conversations like this in the near future. Rest assured. Rest assured. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com. Thank you.